Hey, welcome to The Look Back, my pandemic podcast, or hopefully post-pandemic podcast, broadcasting here from the basement of Newman Media Studios. My name is Keith Newman, and I'm the host of The Look Back. And this is a place where we have some fun conversations with old friends, a few newsmakers, and some rule breakers, all in the name of sharing insights and experiences, along with a little bit of levity and fun. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you're so inclined or perhaps even open to some bribery, you'll share this podcast with some friends who might also enjoy it. Let's go on to the show. Oh, what a pleasure to have Tony Uphoff, an old running mate of mine, to jam along. Look, he's got the guitars ready to go, so we're going to jam along. Um, Tony, who, who you know, you're on the, uh, the Acceleration Economy rocket ship, the media and research company that's just doing some phenomenal work. But you and I have obviously crossed paths from our days in the, the media world of Ziff Davis and CMP, where I always tell people, hey, we worked at these companies during the best times possible. And yeah. I just had so much fun and so much experience. But hey, Tony, welcome to the podcast, The Look Back. Really a delight to have you. Keith, I, it, I've been looking forward to this, my friend. So thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah, well, great. Hey, would you do us a favor to kind of set a set a format here, set our foundation? You're great at doing that as a as a presenter, but um, take me through it at the the high point of, of your career. There's been so many great stops, um, and uh, and we can just get going from there. Yeah, Keith, to try to 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 you know shrink it down a little bit. I I grew up in a family that that I didn't realize, but was a family where publishing was the dinner table conversation every night. I didn't think of it as publishing. My mom was a, uh, an English professor, a journalist and a PR professional. My dad was an ad sales guy. And so I didn't realize from a very young age, we'd be sitting around the dinner table. That was kind of the topic of conversation. So probably not a huge surprise. I got out of school and had studied marketing communications and I had a really fascinating interest in information. And I wanted to be a publisher. Back then, being a publisher was a big deal, as you'll remember, and being a publisher of a magazine. And so I started work at a little publisher's rep firm because it was hard to get into the business. I got recruited to publishing companies and kind of worked my way through. I was a young exec at Zip Davis for eight years back when Zip Davis was really the preeminent company that was, frankly, helping to define reality around the personal computer industry with brands like PC Magazine and, uh, and uh, several others that, that, uh, that people would well remember. And it also Keith, you know, gave me this remarkable opportunity to really, I didn't realize it at the time, but I had a seat around the table, even though I wasn't speaking much at the dawning of major computer revolutions, you know, the early stages of the PC revolution, the networking revolution. And so, the, the access to, to these companies that was really amazing. From there, I, I, I became a publisher and I published a brand called Information Week for CMP Media and then grew up from there to group publisher and president of, uh, of the company in business. We sold CMP uh, back in, in uh, early 2000s and I built an internet startup. I was uh, the, the first CEO of a uh, influential, not high-flying financially, uh, internet startup called BeliefNet that uh, we got to survive the first wave of the internet. And then from there, I went on and, and built businesses like UBM TechWeb, 
I was an executive at VNU Media with all the entertainment assets. So I hung out in Hollywood for a few years. And then most recently, Keith, operating wise, I was the president and CEO of a business called thomasnet.com, which is the leading um, sourcing platform for industrial buyers and was able to help lead a, a remarkable turnaround of the business and then a very successful sale for about six times revenues to a publicly traded company uh, called Zometry. So that, I, I think that, I think I captured it in that about 60 great. seconds. Hey, listen, you can, only do, you can only do an executive summary so fast with that long that long career. And you're only 27 years old, which is really exactly. Well, that that escapes uh, uh, memory, but I I think the thing I point out is, is like a lot of people will look at our publishing backgrounds and assume that well it's too bad that industry's gone away so those skills that you had are not sort of transferable to what you might call this new economy that's always changing and you know we've seen through the internet age to, to now the uh, the AI age I guess but the funny thing is what we learned. And what you had in your DNA, I guess, um, you know, what we learned through our Ziff Davis and then CMP experiences was really deeply understanding the buying process in a B2B world. Like, who are the decision makers? Who are the influencers in that process? And those are the people you have to reach. And how do you get them to act? And then all the media did is insert itself in the middle of that process somewhere, sometimes the front end, middle end a back end of that process. And you've seen all kinds of, of different things like that. Isn't it kind of interesting how that fundamental learning it stays with us uh, through these all these various roles? Yeah, and Keith, I think you're putting your finger on something that, that's really fascinating and I get it. In today's world, the idea of publishing feels a, a bit dated. A lot of people don't even really know what that means in the, in the, um, in the spirit of the, the digital economy that we now live in. My career, and to an extent yours, Keith, is almost divided exactly in half between pre and post internet. And the skills that I learned and the experiences I had coming up as a publisher were really remarkable because what it did is it, is it gave you the ability to analyze and understand markets and deeply, very deeply, because these are the people subscribing, understand the buyer. And in this case, Keith, the buyer of technology. And this hit me probably in the mid nineties when I was publishing information week and we had gotten the brand up to a really great growth curve. And we started to celebrate the rock star like nature of the chief information officers. And, you know, we were making these folks rock stars. And I realized when I would go out into the market and I would start meeting with advertisers, working with our sales leadership team, suddenly they'd be leaning in and saying, Hey, can you, can you tell me about Randy Mott down at Walmart? Do you actually know him? Hey, do you know so-and-so? Do you know Cinda Hallman at DuPont? I love it. I, so I you, created these, you created these relationships uh, by making them heroes and, and deservedly. You got it. Right? And, and what it did was I realized that the value of producing information products to inform you know, business professionals to do their job better around buying and managing technology and business was the ultimate service really for the advertiser. Because the more I knew about the buyer of their products and services, it wasn't that I understood advertising, I understood their buyer. And so therefore doors opened and it made, I think, kind of going back to your key point, that lesson 
I still keep uppermost in my mind, Keith, as a, as a, I consider what I do business information. I don't really get bogged down on what the platform is, but I'm a business information geek. I'm focused on what's the type of information and how do I create it as a daily habit, right? For that key buyer, because if I do that job really, really well, the revenue side of the business, the sponsor, the advertiser, boy, they'll come beating a path to my door if I really understand their buyer. Right, because now we have certain metrics in a digital marketing landscape, right, that says, hey, this is what's really working. Hey, this is what's driving people to my website. And then this is what's helping me engage that person. And they, this is what's helping me turn that that engagement into a, a deeper dialogue, a deeper sort of sales discussion. Right. Well, and if you think about it, you know, you you orbit in these circles and you have a brilliant marketing mind. You know, you talk to the, uh, there is no such thing as the average chief marketing officer, but you talk to a lot of people in technology, chief marketing officers, ad agencies, marketing professionals. And <clears throat> if you actually ask them where they spend their time, the smallest, literally the smallest amount of time is with people who actually buy products and services from their company. Just think of all the jobs that they've got to do, right? And so in the spirit of jobs to be done, I always kind of visualized in my mind, I'm their window into what that world really looks like and how those people feel, what the motivations are, how that buying process works. <clears throat> because Isn't that funny, they, Tony? they couldn't. Yeah, I'll let you catch your breath. I mean, one of the things that's funny, as you're talking about this, I used to really enjoy walking into companies and saying, let me tell you a little bit about your customer. Let me tell you, I've just met with, and they're like, what? How did yeah. you talk to these people? I, yeah. I never get to talk to them. And it was so fun to be able to inform. And, and, and that's instant credibility from a sales standpoint. But it's also just from a, a, a business elevation standpoint. And you're absolutely right. You, we have these tools to talk to our customers. We don't use them as effectively enough. Hey, let me let me pivot a, a, away just a little bit. When you think about this great career path you've been on, and I really do admire so many of your uh, stops, but more so the accomplishments and the great cultures you built along the way and products you built along the way. What were some of your, like, what's some of your favorite highlights? Give me one or two. Boy, <clears throat> you know, I should have prepped um, you, and I'm sorry. But no, 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 no. I, there's a few that come to mind and, and, and kind of guide my energies here. I was um, worked at this rep firm, and I had a lot of fun there. And within a couple of years, I started to get some, some traction in the marketplace, meaning I started to get recruited. And I, again, I wanted to plot a path to become a publisher. And you'll love this, Keith. I, I got jo two job offers at the same time. One was to go to work on Sports Illustrated, selling advertising space back back when Sports Illustrated was the brand. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was in L.A. And then the other was to sell for uh, EE Times, Electronic Engineering Times, a CMP title. And that was going to be based in the Silicon Valley. And I, you'll love this. I made the bold strategic decision that I had just gotten married. The EE Times job paid, I think, $15,000 a year more than wow. the Sports Illustrated job. So I, I went that direction. But I, I would, the, the two opportunities or positions that come to mind when you ask the question, the first was um, I was at CMP for a while and on a management track at CMP, it was a sales guy in the Silicon Valley having a lot of fun. And I got recruited by Ziff Davis. And back then Ziff Davis was really kind of considered a bigger league 
you know, environment than CMP was. CMP was a, a newer company. It was, it was growing very quickly, but Zip Davis was a very powerful company. And, and well, kind of just, people to, used to, just to set the record, Tony, not to interrupt, but I mean, they kind of defined the business to business category of special interest publishing on the consumer side. Then Zip sold all those titles. I forget to, to CBS maybe, or I forget. You're right. But then they said, we're going to go all tech. And they did their yep. PC magazine and PC yep. week and, and all of that. Yeah, and, and it was it was a big step up. I got recruited and I got turned them down twice. And the third time they came after me, they offered me a job to be an ad director on PC Week in the Silicon Valley. It had 18 reports. It was a huge job. And frankly, Keith, it was way over my head. I mean, so far over my head, I couldn't even see it, right? Okay, I don't and believe I, you, but okay. I, I look at that pivotal moment and I think my um, willingness to take a risk, and it was a risk, because I could have failed miserably in that role. And I stepped up and boy, I had some sleepless nights. I learned on the job. I made a tremendous number of mistakes, but it was my first real management job and it went really well. And I was very fortunate. I had a good team. I had a lot of, lot of benefits, but that was pivotal. The other was now I've been at Zip Davis for seven or eight years. And nice curve, I had been a vice president of the company and was doing well, and CMP came calling. And a mutual friend of ours who was president of the company at the time, a guy named Ken Cron, had always wanted me to come back. And he offered me to take over Information Week, which had been a languishing brand at CMP, it had been kind of flirting with break even for many years, not doing particularly well, not well thought of. And he knew I understood that space in the market. And I came over, and for six months, you know, my family living in a rental, unhappy with New York and not didn't want to be there. And it wasn't going well, wasn't going well, wasn't going well. And I had been out in Utah because Intel's agency was in Utah and working with our rep out there. And I was scheduled to take the red eye that night from Utah, layover in Vegas for an hour and then back into New York. And as I was leaving this ad agency in Utah, <clears throat> one of the senior people there asked if he could talk to me privately for a minute. And so I went, you know, okay, great. And he looked at me and he said, hey, I've been talking to the president of Zip Davis. They would love to have you back. He said, I think I see where you're trying to take information week. It will never work, Tony. And you're too talented of a guy to languish on a brand like this. Jump forward, red eye. I'm sitting in Las Vegas. I'm just like, oh, you got to be kidding. The next, that was on a, a Friday. The next Monday, I was in Boston. And there was a legendary media director named Ellen Freeman. And I gave the same talk, the same presentation, room full of people. She doesn't say a word. She, her arms are folded. She knew me from Zip Davis as well. She gets to the end of it in front of everybody there. She says, if you can do what you said you are going to do with this brand, this will become the biggest brand in all of business to business media. And Keith, honest to God, had she not made that comment to me, and by the way, she was, she was right. Um, had she not made that comment to me, I don't know that I had the fortitude to gut it out because it was just that little window. So anyways, too long of a story yeah, there, but those are, those are two pivotal moments that, that, that come and, and, you know, a little bit of luck there, Keith, a little bit of experience and fortitude, but also, you know, th there was a couple of staring in the mirror, kind of like, hey, big fella, 
<laughs> you're either going to do this or not. You know, when, when we do the quote, look back on our careers, Tony, that, that's a great memory for you that you ended up taking the right path. Where was one example you maybe said, oh, look, you know, on hindsight, maybe did you have you drawn the wrong decision in the wrong path? Yeah, a couple of times. You know, I I um, you know, I, I have friends of mine that would say, boy, Tony, if I look at your career, you were the most calculated guy. You knew exactly when to move and you always moved up and you always did this and always did that. Yeah. That's a, that's an idealized version. <clears throat> Excuse me. Revisionist I, history. Yeah. I, I think there's, you know, I've been a, a CEO four times and I've been very fortunate to have, A, put myself in that position. But the challenge with being a CEO that takes over an existing business, so unless you're founding it, is there's a reason they're making a change in, in the, in, with the CEO. And it's a little like buying a house that needs to be remodeled. You know certain things, you can do inspections, you can do diligence, but once you get in it, you're going to discover something that you didn't know or didn't understand. And there were two, um, not, not both of them were CEO positions, but two positions I took based on what I thought to be true about the positions. And when I got in, it wasn't what I thought. And in one of those cases, it was irreparable. There was no, you know, it, it, it was found, the foundation was cracked continuing the metaphor and there was really not much I could do about it. So long way to the point. I learned from those two though, Keith, I learned, you know, a, a little bit of don't, don't just jump at something that the money looks good and the title sounds good. Slow down in the diligence process. Don't be afraid to say no. Other opportunities will come if you're good and you're patient. And, and, and boy, those were hard-earned lessons because- Is part of it, is part of the takeaway, Tony, uh, more due diligence or more study or talk to more people? Um, I find I, like I've, I, I could have benefited from a little more patience in some of these opportunities. I'm a very, uh, you know, uh, reaction, impulse kind yeah. of driven person. So I go with my yeah. gut sometimes. Yeah, we share that. And, and I think, you know, probably- 52% of the time, that's the right way to go. Yeah. 48% of the time, you know. So I think the answer is yes, a little bit more diligence. This is going to sound funny in context, Keith. I think for me, what I've learned is to every once in a while, slow down and let the game come to me. Don't try to force it. Don't try to force to closure. Don't try to force a deal. And I, if I look back on a couple of opportunities I took that, frankly, I probably should have looked elsewhere or taken more time, I kind of wrestled them to the ground. And if I had just been a little more patient, and I know this sounds kind of ethereal, but I think as you get into those environments, yes, a little bit of diligence is helpful. But I think if you're in a situation where you're not sold, you're not sold for a reason, right? And, and more diligence may not help you. If it's not in your gut that, hey, I, I really can picture myself. That's the last piece I'd add to this, Keith to particularly younger, younger folks that, that listen to your podcast, visualize yourself in the role. And if you can't literally see it, that doesn't mean you shouldn't take it, but that could be a little bit of a warning buzzer that you either need to kind of spend a little bit more time. You need to kind of understand, you know, whether this is the right position. And if I look back on at least one of those positions, if I was really honest, I didn't really picture myself in it. And then yeah. suddenly I'm in it. Yeah. And you got to feel like, is this going to be exciting for me to wake up? Because yes. I know how much energy and, and hours I'm going to put behind this. So 
it's got to be exciting too. I know there's the money, but that only lasts to so much of that excitement on that 16 hour flight and that 12 hour weekend, you know, meeting that you're doing for whatever reason. Well, it's because you're passionate and it's fun for you. It's that excitement. And you've always had that attitude with every role I've seen you in. Yeah, Keith, I appreciate that. I think part of what that is, and I actually interview for this, for positions, and I teach this as a framework in companies oh, okay. that I'm involved in, Good. is I think you should look for curiosity. Passion is passion is an interesting thing. And I and I think I think you and I are saying the same thing. I tend to isolate curiosity a little bit more because passion can, you know, you can you can talk to somebody after four or five cups of coffee and they got a lot of passion and a lot of energy. You know, I, I want people that have that that they've got the energy, but they're also genuinely curious. Hey, how does this work? Why'd you make that decision? How'd you get into this business? Hey, how does the buyer work today? How does that actually go down? Hey, what is going to happen with generation? I mean, uh, generative AI in business today? How's that really going to work? This the kind of stuff you would that, talk about? Was this what you would talk about at those family dinners, Tony? We would have this absolutely, thing? absolutely. And and you know, it, some of it, Keith. I look back and it was you know, I'm, I'm yeah. a five year old kid. It was way over my head. Yeah. But that idea of almost just just wallowing in the in the in the market dynamics and the intellectual process there was really fun for me yeah. and still is look that's what you and i are doing right now yeah so i'm again this is fun for me uh the idea about where we are today coming from you know the dawn of the pc era and that enormous wave that that took on to today where we've in the last it feels like 12 months um, even going back to the beginning of COVID, so a couple of years, but we've seen this whole, you know, metamorphosis of the landscape touching on things like um, metaverse and AI and blockchain and VR and AR um, yep. and, and so much excitement. And then you're thinking, okay, this is way too much uh, for the world to adopt. And now we hit with the AI um, generative AI stuff landing here today. Now, of course, some of these trends have been going on for a dozen years, but yep. You know, they're really coming into their, you know, their zone right now, and they're becoming so popular. How do you look at these these waves and these cycles? And what do you what would you be doing now if you were like entering the professional world when you kind of entered the world of Zip and CMP? How would you look at entering in this world? Yeah, I think first off, you know, I try to get a sense like you do too, Keith, a sense of context. Have I seen something like this before? And so whether it's, you know, the acceleration of the PC economy, whether it was the introduction and commercialization of the internet, whether it was the acceleration of mobile, right? Really in 2007 with the iPhone, you know, I can compare uh, generative AI to those. And, and I will tell you, it, it, in my opinion, will be as big, if not bigger than any of those. And so I think we're, we're at the forefront of something that's interesting. And I know I call it the yeah, but uh, crowd. Oh yeah, but uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. AI has been around for 50 years. Well, the internet had been around for a long time before we commercialized it. The idea of mobile phones and, and, and even mobile computing had been around a long time before the iPhone you know, came around. <clears throat> what I think generative AI represents is the mainstreaming of artificial intelligence. And that's one of those pivot points that I would call out for people because once that mainstreaming starts, it's like what happened with the internet. It's gonna build very quickly. And so to your question of, 
you know, what, what would I do if this was 30 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, I think what I would look for is how to build a business in and around generative AI. I think the power of this technology is going to be so fascinating. And I think particularly around domain specific generative AI, not just general, hey, you can go on to open AI and you can ask it questions and you can have it generate things for you. I mean, literally applying it yeah. in individual applications and vertical markets. That really excites me. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So exciting. I agree. And, and by the way, I think this is sort of the HTML moment where, you know, it's really starting to take off. What do you what do you think in terms of those companies that you used to talk about? Right. Um, that Fortune 2000 audience. Um, who is the person that owns the 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 decisions about how to leverage AI in their industries or does it cross over? I mean, because it feels like almost every person has to learn how they're going to apply AI in their practices, whether they're, you know, customer support or customer success or marketing or IT or whatever. But is there going to be a, a gen AI or an AI officer at a company to kind of figure out organizationally how they're leveraging it? Hey, I, I, you know, I'll give you my two cents and I'd love to hear your perspective on this because you and I have seen these cycles before. New technology is introduced and, um, you know, it is, it is handled by the traditional people, the chief information officer, the VP of information technology, and it's kind of cloistered in that group. Right. But every once in a while we see a technology come in and I would point to mobile where bring your own device took off and suddenly now, you know, you saw other people that could have skin in the game that got involved. At Acceleration Economy, Keith, we believe we're witnessing one of those moments where we're starting to see what we refer to as the broadening of the business technology buying committee. So we're starting to see titles like the chief marketing officer, the chief revenue officer. We're starting to see folks that could be general managers of a division that are starting to get actively involved. I'll give you an example. Let's say you and I were uh, general managers for a division of a consumer packaged goods company and a competitor just launched a direct to consumer model and is really kicking our tail in the marketplace. Well, first thing you and I are gonna be doing is we'd study that, but we'd also be knocking on the door of the tech folks saying, hey, I've got skin in this game. I've got budget in this game. I'm gonna get involved in this. So I think this is one of those eras. I think also implicit in your question, Keith, is if I remember, if I look back on the early days of the internet, it was the people that that almost self-appointedly said, I need to learn about this. I need to understand this. I need to understand how it's going to work. We can't just put .com on the company name and be done with it. I need to figure this out. If you look back on it, those were all kinds of different job functions. It wasn't yep. traditional tech. It was oftentimes right. business leaders like you and me who said, hey, this is going to impact my audience my revenue customers. So long way back to the point, I think you're going to see a broadening of people that are going to take you know, initiative here and learn it. I am going to guess that there will be, and I think it'll be temporary, a gen AI officer you know, type of a role, but, but I think it's going to be mostly around ethical use of artificial intelligence because, you know, um, I don't buy into the screaming headlines that this is going to be, you know, damaging. However, there can be misuse. And particularly if you're in highly regulated industries, 
you you want to look at this with clear eyes and understand how it operates and how it works because you could inadvertently right shoot yourself in the foot by deploying some of these technologies in ways that that are going to be ineffective well my only my only comment to add on to, to what you said tony which i agree with is this whole notion of digital transformation which has been espoused for for years now it's real with ai i think ai is the catalyst for digital transformation and i think you bring up some excellent points about how it's going to be impacted and how companies have to start to address it. There were things like blockchain or NFT and, and Web3 that I could say, yeah, not quite yet. I'll get, I'll learn about it all, but I don't have to invest half my schedule into this stuff. Now I think it's getting pretty close with AI. Um, yeah. I, I just want to pivot to one more thing. I'm already taking too much of your time. I promised 30 minutes and I'm over. So I can't afford your rate, so I got to go quickly here. <laughs> no, but I do want to um, let you get in a plug for my favorite new company, Acceleration Economy. And I, I feel like um, a lot of people are, are learning about it from where you came from, right? The IT world. Um, but I think it's got much, much larger um, coverage than that. And I just want you to share that with the audience, what you're trying to do with Acceleration Economy and how it's different from... <laughs> go back to the information week all the way forward to a garden yeah. or, or something else. So do you, do you yeah. mind? Yeah. Keith, thank you. So let me give credit where credit is due here. So two very close friends of mine, John Seifert, who serves as the CEO uh, and founder of Acceleration Economy, and then co-founder Bob Evans, who helped me build information week together. And so these, these have been friends of mine for a long time. They had a vision of bringing a couple of brands together to create um, what we're describing is a new age tech analyst firm. And what we mean by that is there's nothing new about technology analysis. We've seen Gartner and Forrester and any number of companies that are out there. But most of those really come at it from the vendor's point of view, not the buyer's point of view. Then the second thing is when you talk to many of the analysts at those firms, they tend to have come out of a vendor's business and they tend not to have been somebody that is actually bought and managed technology and business. So step one is we built a practitioner analyst network. So all of our analysts have come from CEOs, CMOs, CIOs, CISOs, CDOs. So they bring Keith this kind of visceral, hey, I've had to live and die career-wise with the decisions I make. Let me tell you what I think of this technology or this vendor or this market environment. So I think the biggest difference there is it's practitioner-led and that's enabled us to have a real visceral connect with the audience out there that have to make those decisions and are really interested in understanding it from a peer, P-double-E-R's point of view, as opposed to purely the vendor's point of view. And I think that's the, the biggest differentiator. I think the other thing to kind of to your you know, observation is what we're finding is, back to what I said about the broadening, I tend to commentate either in video or in writing quite a bit about senior leadership views of technology. And I'm hearing from a ton of people, Keith, that are non-technical managers, but they're now having to figure out technology, not the way an IT professional would, but I hear from CEOs all the time that are saying to me, hey, can you break down hyper automation? I'm not sure what that means. Hey, Tony, can you help me explain this? My team's coming to me talking about something called process mining. What is that? And as a CEO, how should I understand it? I, I, I'm sure the tech team understands it, but I want to understand strategically. So I think perhaps implicit in your observation, Keith, 
I think there's a there's a, a pivot in what's happening out there where the days of tech being something it's nice to have and that was in a back office, you know, is now it's a have to have and it is your business. No matter what industry you're in, you are a tech company. So every function in the company now has to really understand the strategic implications of tech. And then one last thing I'll throw at you. Almost everything in technology now is sold as a service. That's very different than when you and I were first coming up. You know, they kind of backed a truck up and dropped it off and that was it. Today, it's a beginning of a relationship to sign up for one of these. So understanding as a business executive, how do I make that decision? But what's that relationship look like is really important. So more than you wanted to know, but that's the founding of Acceleration Economy. And last thing I'll say, we're having a blast with it. Way more than I wanted to know, but I still want to know more. It's so fun. I'm a big fan of a big fan of those guys and that you mentioned in the team overall, where you're going, because I think it serves as a, a really helpful uh, a, a stool, uh, a leg of the stool that's out there. Look, it's not to say G2 or Gartner or, you know, the great media companies that are out there. I love them all. Um, some do a better job than others, but that's for everybody to decide, right? Let, Correct. The beauty of having choice and with this huge wave, we just touched on on this call, you know, there's so much activity going on in so many different areas. You need resources to help guide you through that stuff. So, it, and, and Keith, what we're finding, one last point I would make is it's not an either or world. Yeah, I would say the vast majority of our, our customers are also yeah. customers of many of those other firms that you mentioned out there. They're getting something a little different yeah. and they're getting something that, that likely complements other resources or information they're using. Yeah. So besides all the things that you've been involved with or are involved with, what's one of your favorite uh, uh, tools that you use to help you do your job better? Is it software? Or, you know, like you, you can't use the, uh, the Les Paul uh, or Rickenbacker as an example. You got to... <laughs> Got to give me a, a, a yeah. You know, I'll, I'll I'll give you a couple that that um, may or may not be on some of your listeners' radar. I'm a huge fan of Rome, and it's a um, to call it a note taking platform would be really doing it a disservice. It's got reciprocal linking in it, and so you can not only take notes, but you can build kind of a library of information, and you can always find things and then see the reciprocal nature of it. So. I'll do a digest of what we talked about here when this episode is out. I'll, yeah. I'll put the link in there. Yeah. And so I can go back and, and it's almost kind of like a second brain for me. I find that really, really helpful. Yeah. When, I, when I write, I'm a big fan of Evernote as, as a writing uh, platform and, and tool, I think is really, really helpful. And then just in the fun area, uh, I, as you can see by the backdrop here, I, I've gotten uh, refocused on the guitar as a, as a bit of a passion. There are so many cool apps out now where you can learn techniques on the guitar, learn songs and different things that are you know, on your iPhone. You can pop it up and, and get access to incredible talent and stuff like that. So those are just a, just a few that I use. Okay. So now I have to ask, favorite guitarist? Well... Okay, so do we have 10 seconds for a quick quick story? When I was uh, a kid, I grew up in a town yeah. that was very very close to Pasadena, California. So it was a small town called yeah. San Marino, 25,000 residents. And I'm a sophomore in high school and we heard that a band called Mammoth was gonna play a backyard party in Pasadena. So we got on our 10 speeds and rode up to this big house in Pasadena and there was a tennis court and there was a band set up. And, 
we go down and the band starts playing. They were kind of a cover band. They were probably four or five years older than we yeah. were. And they were really tight for a cover band. But the guitar player was, I, I just literally, to this day, I'd never heard anything like it before. And I've never heard anything like it since. He, he was unbelievably talented. And I remember riding home on my 10 speed with my, with my buddy, Tim. Yeah. And I said, I don't know about the rest of those guys. We're going to hear from that guy. And so Mammoth changed their name to Van Halen. I knew few, it. I would have guessed that. You had a good a build. A few up. years later. And so we hired Van Halen. They were called Mammoth at the time to play our high school a couple of times. And, you know, I, I attended, you know, one or two other backyard parties. I want to awesome. be very clear. I don't That's know great. them. I didn't get to know the band, you know, other than to see them. And I'm not a huge fan of whatever you want to call heavy metal, but to see, I, I, the only way I could describe it, Keith, is it was the dawning of seeing a true genius. This guy had an original, he wasn't playing other people's licks and stuff. No. He had an original voice on the guitar and he was probably 18, 19 at the time, I'm going to guess. Well, it, it, he's so famous. I mean, you can just hear three notes and you go, oh, that's Eddie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I follow everybody. I'm I'm a huge fan of acoustic guitar players, electric guitar players. My yeah. current favorite is uh, is Derek Trucks, who plays uh, in, in a remarkable band with his wife called the Tedeschi Trucks Band. And I've heard of that, yeah, yeah. If if you're not familiar, imagine a cross Susan, between Susan Tedeschi. Tedeschi, yeah, yeah, is okay. exactly right. And yeah. so that band is incredible. I've seen them a ton of times. Imagine a cross between the Allman Brothers band with a female singer and add a horn section. Okay. It is a remarkable band. So to your listeners, I'd highly recommend it. We could go on for so long just on a guitar discussion. I have more stories for you. Let's save those over a soda when we get together next or out in uh, uh, Balboa Island. You'll buy me a chocolate banana or something with your grandkid. How's that? I love it. I love it. You're on. I would love to, bro. Thanks for taking time, Tony. Great catching up with you. Thanks, Keith. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to The Look Back. We do appreciate your support, welcome any feedback, and would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, check us out at newmanmediastudios.com.